now it's easier to start a whole new business than get an existing company to flex around you. And I think it's been really powerful how honest those women have been about why they're leaving the industry. Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Omar Oaks. This year marks 100 years of women in advertising. Wackle. At the current rate of progress, according to the World Economic Forum, it will take another 132 years to achieve gender parity. Are we really prepared to wait that long? That's the question asked by Nicola Kemp in her new monthly column for The Media Leader. Nicola is editorial director at Creative Brief and a long-standing media and advertising industry journalist whom I just happened to work with for many years at marketing and campaign magazines. She's just started writing this new column for the media leader. Hello, um, Nicola Kemp. Um, tell the audience briefly who you are, what's your professional background and what you do now. Thanks, Omar. Um, so I've spent the past two decades writing about media, advertising and trends. I'm really passionate about women finding their voice and diversity, equity and inclusion, but really as an innovative force for business. I think we often use it as a bit of a side thing, a one-off trend just for International Women's Day. Um, So I'm really excited um, to talk to you today. I do a lot of work that's writing, but I also train women um, with the social learning consultancy Good Shout. So I often see under the hood of some of the behaviors that we have Um, in the media industry. I'm also the co-founder of DICE, which is diversity in conferences and um, in events as well. So that's all about creating spaces um, for new voices and fresh voices, which I'm also really passionate about. I have two really young children. So you'll usually find me at the weekend um, freezing at a pitch, watching one of many sports that they um, partake in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I have two younger children than you and um, just last weekend uh, my daughter um, was learning how to throw a ball um, surprisingly well actually um, but yeah I, I, I can see my my future in your present and it's interesting you say that about kind of keeping up with um, home life as well because you seem to be everywhere according to LinkedIn which is <laughs> increasingly my main source of news tragically I mean you seem to be prolifically writing not only just for us but elsewhere doing lots of things at conferences what, what's a typical day like for you? So it really varies um, I'm super lucky because I work part-time um, so I work three and a half days for creative brief um, and then I usually work one day for good shout so doing media training and conferences um, and then I also spend a lot of time with my young children So my week is often packed, sometimes on the jagged edge, Um, but I think it's really important and particularly within this conversation, I'm 43 years old, so I'm a very small percentage of women in the media industry and I'm just coming up for air now. You know, I think when your children are really young and you're having to get to the nursery for a set period of time to pick them up your days can become so squeezed and it's it's only now at this point in my career that I feel like I can really make friends with my professional ambition if that makes sense and I think that's why I'm so passionate about this conversation because I look around me at my peer group and, and I look at the women that really supported me um, when I was coming up and at those pinch points in my career and too often they're not they're they're not actually in the industry anymore they've taken different 
routes and made different decisions. And and generally, I mean, lots of people do different things, but generally, what are the exit routes for these women that have left the industry? See, I think this is so fascinating because I, there's so many different ones. I think top of the list is women who work uh, agency side going brand side. So, you know, newsflash, that woman that might have been squeezed out of your ad agency in a couple of years from now, you're probably going to be pitching to her for your business, um, which is <laughs> makes this really a business issue. Also, just starting their own businesses, companies, podcasts. There's so much innovation from women who've been squeezed out of our sector. And I think that's such an interesting point because we have made huge amounts of progress, but essentially now it's easier to start a whole new business than get an existing company to flex around you. And I think it's been really powerful how honest those women have been about why they're leaving the industry. And I think it's really important to do something about it and, and really ask those women to stay. Mm. I mean, that's very much the thrust of your piece. And before we get into this piece in a bit more detail, um, which we did publish um, to coincide with International Women's Day on the 8th of March, um, explain broadly, first of all, what you want to write about in this column. So I've spent two decades interviewing people. I'm a really naturally nosy person. I mean, you know that having worked with me. But I've often found that the most interesting stories are the things that people tell you once the interview has finished, once it's not in the public mm, space. Mm. And I've really found that with the work that I've been doing in media training women as well. Some of the feedback that women have received particularly in COVID when we were in lockdown. So if you had a terrible pitch or you had a difficult meeting or you went for a job interview and you just talked absolute nonsense and you really lost it, there was nowhere to download that feeling of failure. So I've really been noticing, uh, particularly amongst women, but also men as well, something of a creative crisis of confidence where People feel that they're not good enough or they're not living up to where they believe they should be. And I think it's such a difficult ecosystem to exist in anyway. So my hope with this column is to really have some of those private conversations in a bit more of a public space, because there's so many structural challenges that women face in the workplace. We absolutely can't afford to be having an internal war against ourselves in our heads saying, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not where I want to be in my career. I've failed at this or I failed at that. It's like, I really want to change that narrative. And I really believe genuinely that there's a lot of leaders in our business that don't actually understand the experiences that their women are going through within their business. I think this is particularly challenging in agency networks because Nobody tells the CEO the truth. And if you think about, you know, the sort of incremental 10% difference that might be, be sort of being layered on to an experience before it reaches the CEO, you end up with a bit of a situation where companies are gaslighting their employees because they're publicly talking about these wonderful policies that they've got, but they don't actually realize what's happening to the women in their organizations in the kind of messy middle of their careers. Um, 
I think um, a lot of um, CEOs that would be listening to this conversation would be rather um, disheartened. Well, they should be disheartened to hear you say that, but also quite shocked because um, with Me Too movement, with you know, we're speaking um, on the day just you know after the all in all the, the all in census has been published, where there have been great moves to find out about how people are feeling, um, to at least gather that information. You know what. Well, the next step is doing something about it. But in terms of um, no one telling CEOs the truth, I mean, how does that happen in practice generally? I think it's a lot of different proof points. I think we measure things that maybe don't reflect what goes on to happen, if that makes sense. So lots of companies will measure what percentage of women come back from maternity leave, but they won't go on to measure how long those women stay for. And there's a growing amount of research that shows that actually women are coming back and then they're leaving after 12 months. And there are quite a lot of really interesting data points that cross all different organizations. So the all-in census, 70% of the industry's junior managers are women. But by the time you get to the C-suite, only 34% of roles are taken up by women. So across loads of different agencies, we're losing all these incredibly talented women right in the middle. And there's lots of things happening there. There's not enough promotion of women. We know that. There's loads of statistics that show us that women aren't hired for potential. So men are 21% more likely to be promoted than women. So there's a lot happening there. There's also the gender pay gap. We know what the gender pay gap is, is in our industry. They have to publish that data. And it costs on average £19,000. That's after tax for an average childcare place in London. The average rent in London is just shy of £100,000, no, £1,000 a month. So that's quite a big outgoing you've got there. So you can see that there's specific challenges at that moment in time. And so I wonder if agencies are being hard enough on themselves internally in terms of what they are doing to support those women. Because I know it's very important to have shared parental leave, but at the moment we can see that this issue is disproportionately impacting women. So I think there's a lot around that. And then there's all the thousand tiny paper cuts of everyday sexism. Definitely in the work that I've been doing training women, there's a real issue with feedback and the kind of feedback we're giving to women in particular. And if that feedback is helpful, necessary, or what that feedback is actually wanting to achieve. So I think that's really having an impact. We don't see that so much in data, but that, that confidence crisis and actually what's causing that, because I think we've probably as an industry, really taken on the idea of 360 feedback and how important that is. And lots of people that work on pitches, they will have gone through those processes where people are giving fresh eyes to their work. But the feedback that women are getting is sometimes very personal. It's based on what they look like. And those things can have a huge impact. And, and that's not necessarily something that you would see in a company-wide survey or the percentage of people that maybe haven't filled out that survey, or you know, the time to research that showed 83% of women who didn't report the sexual harassment that they're experiencing within their companies. 
there's a lot of untold stories of women's experiences that aren't necessarily making it to progress on policy within companies. And on the specific point about feedback, I mean, when you when you first um, raised that, um, I was thinking about internally in terms of bosses, how while speaking to subordinates who happen to be female, and whether there's still a big difference in which managers talk to men versus women. Um, but you're actually talking about between companies, the the client agency relationship, for example, that women are getting more personal feedback than men. It's it goes two ways, if that makes sense. So there's obviously the client relationship. And there's some really good news on that front as well, because you've got a lot of very vocal CMOs like Alini Santos at Unilever, who are really advocating for women in agencies. And that's been such a huge positive shift in terms of CMOs saying, hey, you know, this product is primarily targeting mothers. Where are the mothers in your creative teams? Like that, that is happening. So that's a really, really positive thing. But any company that is very client-led, that can often be used as a reason for why, oh, no, we can't do flexible working because we're a client-led industry. We can't, you know, we can't give shared paternity leave. We're a client-led industry. But actually, a lot of clients are making those changes. But sometimes there are situations where women are put in uncomfortable positions by clients and agencies have struggled to really deal with that or have a really quick response to that because of that relationship. And then internally within agencies themselves. And I think, if I'm honest, I think the feedback issue does impact men as well. I don't think we've been very good at working out how to give feedback in a digital setting. So, you know, if you have a difficult meeting Mm -hmm. at work or a pitch that goes terribly, you have those little moments where you can decompress on the way out of the meeting, you know, that little pet talk that you might give your junior colleague to say, hey, it happens to all of us. Those tiny little moments aren't happening. And I think they can really mount up. You know, I was talking to a creative director the other day, and she admitted that she'd been listening to some feedback, negative feedback she'd got on a voice note all weekend, just over and over again. And it's like, actually, you know, there's things we can do as individuals to say, these are my boundaries. I'm not going to listen to that voice note on repeat. But I think it's really important to sort of recognize that feedback isn't always a gift. And we give too much of it sometimes as well. I'm really interested in feedback. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's an attack coach um, in rugby. And he said, you know, just give one piece of feedback at a time, one actionable piece of feedback. And I don't think we do that. I think a lot of leaders haven't had a huge amount of training or given a huge amount of thought about how to give growth feedback, feedback that gives you a tangible thing to do rather than feedback that just diminishes people's confidence. I think, um, I mean, the, the you raise actually a lot of issues which are really important. I think one of which is... I was going to ask you, um, I want to ask you rather about hybrid working and the impact that that's had. But, you know, I've I've been banging on about this since the pandemic started in terms of the impact of hybrid working on young people in particular. And my argument has always been that the office is actually a really good place for young people because they're there together, learning 
from from managers not just being told what to do by managers as in, and importantly to your points not just getting feedback on instant chat email uh, voice memo in that example you cite where the difference really is it's not just the eye contact of just speaking to someone interactively in real time as we're doing now but it's also just the fact that that feedback is being written down recorded is there in in black and white and there's something uh, i can't even find the right word that there's something that permanence about it can really make can really amplify the negative for whatever reason and i'm sure i wonder if anyone's done any research on this i'm sure that it's linked to all the anxiety and mental health strain that social media puts on young people in particular as well you know you say the wrong thing it's recorded forever you know i i just think it's incredible the potential for damage we don't even know the extent to it yet this this massive social experiment that's happening in work as well as um at home as well um i mean when you when i mean in terms of the progress that has been made i mean how would you look at things like flexible work hybrid working you you mentioned increased parental leave would you would you say that things compared to five years ago even the pandemic notwithstanding, that we're in a better place compared to five years ago? We are 100% in a better place. I remember, you know, 2015, coming back from my second maternity leave, reading an article in the magazine that I was returning to with Sir John Hegarty saying that the problem was not that there's a glass ceiling in the industry. It was that women went on maternity leave and they became less relevant and the industry moved on so quickly and he was very perfectly making the point that actually the industry does not move on fast enough because that is a really outdated attitude and i think it's really interesting because i think if he made those comments publicly today he would rightly be called out but i also think we need to be really careful of just assuming that things are going to change for the positive because there's so many friction points in hybrid working and there's things that i much prefer doing face-to-face. I love that energy. But I also think we need to be really honest. As an industry, we are much more comfortable having a conversation, is working from home killing creativity, to why the fuck are so many women leaving the industry? That's a space that we're much more comfortable Mm. talking about. And the truth is that we can be Mm. more ambitious about how, where, and why we work. It's not easy, and I think a lot of the challenges have come from companies perhaps publicly putting out a press release about what their working structure is, because nobody's going to put out a press release saying, oh, actually, we told everyone we wanted them back four days a week, and they don't actually want to come back, so they're only here two days a week. Or, you know, there's a big disconnect between what companies say their employees are doing and what they're actually doing, and I think that in itself is creating some friction. But there's some really great examples. And I think the positive thing is when you've got companies as big as publicists publicly having a policy like work from anywhere, that raises the bar for everybody because everyone has to compete for talent. And we've seen this huge exodus of talent. And that's going to have implications for years to come because that smaller number of people that have entered the industry means that there's going to be a real talent squeeze. So we need to be thinking much more carefully and luckily there's companies that have already done the work so if you don't have a menopause policy 
you can steal Channel 4s. If you want to do more to get women back who've left the industry, you can look at what Diageo's done with the Creative Comeback Scheme with Creative Equals. If you want to get women back into the industry, you can look at what Visible Start has done with WPP. I think there's so many great examples. And even the all-in census itself, I mean, that's a phenomenal, huge task. And there's a huge amount of energy there that's gone in from the Ad Association, the IPA, ISBAR. It just shows that if we treat these issues as so important and and we prioritize them and we collaborate on them rather than every single company goes off and starts from scratch, then we can make a lot of progress. And some of the things that we all hate, you know, those friction points, I must admit, Slack for me is like a woodpecker in my brain. It's not a piece of technology that I personally get on with, but other people love it. Turn off notifications. (laughs) (laughs) Always turn off notifications. And But I also think there are assumptions about how young people want to work. And when I look at some of the conversations we're having about the future of work, I really think we need more of those young people in the room because often when I speak to young people in the industry, they're not getting that one-on-one mentoring when they do go in the office because all of their senior colleagues are on Teams calls. So I think it's just being a bit more realistic that some of this isn't going to be a one and done, here's a big solution. It's going to be working through friction points in a really inclusive way and and holding on to some of those things, particularly being able to access talent that's outside of London, disabled talent, neurodivergent talent. You're not going to be able to do that if you have really rigid rules about where people sit when they're doing their work like that's not going to be a way to really grow yeah i mean um i suppose you've started to to talk about it already but why why in your view don't more companies do things like this is it is it frankly too hard for a lot of them i i I think particularly about smaller companies um whom the management maybe feel they don't have the resources to provide more support um and perhaps Is it a case that they need support from the government? It's such a great question. And I think there's always a danger that we see some of these problems as too big to solve. You know, I know the government's making announcements today around childcare infrastructure, but lots of these are really big systemic issues. But small companies, they actually have an advantage in many ways because they don't have giant matrix structures where they're having to for example, protect office footprints from that. The holding companies have mandated how many days that people need to be in those offices, or they've actually got a lot more freedom. And I think it's really, really important because when we look at the talent squeeze and particularly that stat of people, the smaller number of people coming into the industry, it's really beholden to companies to act, particularly small companies to retain their talent. And it's a really simple process as a smaller company, you know, and I'm thinking about companies that maybe don't have HR functions. They are really um, output focused by design. So it's really about teaching and empowering line managers to have those conversations with their staff as to how, where, and when do you work best? And then laddering that up to the client work they're doing and work out the best way for that to work. Because 
if people are happy, if people are able to engage in the rest of their lives, and I'm not just talking about people who have caring responsibilities, I'm talking about people who want to have a life, who are creative and are curious, and they want to keep that creativity flowing, then it's really important to have that conversation about actually how do you work best? What can we do to support you? And absolutely leaning on organizations and industry initiatives like All In, Creative Equals, these kind of companies is really, really important because I guess that's where some smaller companies have missed the boat to some degree because you would never ask me, for example, to do your finances, someone with no experience in accounting. But you probably would be very comfortable to ask someone with no professional experience in DEI to do your company's DEI policy. And I think that's where things can go wrong. Um, but I think actually smaller companies have a great opportunity to differentiate themselves with talent by working in new ways. And we can see that there's companies that have done that really well. Like I'm thinking like the social element, media bounty, these are different employee propositions, really based on how can we enable you to create the best work of your life, which obviously in turn massively benefits those companies and those both hugely successful companies but the ethos is just a bit different um yeah that's something that i happen to see um again again on linkedin where i get all my news nowadays um i, I when i when you see job ads being posted um by people they they often will say some version of come here to do the best work of your life and i don't think i used to see anything like that no. a few years ago i think that's really changed where the ante is being upped in terms of what work means to people and really being cognizant of the fact that people do have, I mean, they shouldn't have short careers, but it seems short and people are impatient to do their best work. Um, for individuals, I mean, what's what's your advice for women in the industry who feel held back by all of these structural barriers that we've been talking about? I mean, what practical steps should they take? Who should they talk to? Number one is build your community. I mean, you started this conversation by celebrating 100 years of Wackle and you know, Women in Advertising and Communications London. I'm a part of Wackle. That's been a huge positive force in my life and my career with those women supporting me. And there's other organizations um, within the industry, like Bloom. Bloom is an incredibly supportive organization. There's lots of different organizations. So at top of my list is find your network, find your community, because when you start having conversations about your experiences, that can really help you feel supported. And, and number two is boundaries. And I think this is a really tricky one. And I think we are all, if we're honest, struggling with this in a post-COVID world. It's really easy to work all day, do the second shift of, you know, whether you're doing childcare or what other responsibilities you have outside of work, and then put in a third shift of doing more work after that until you go to bed. And I think it's really important to actually acknowledge that that isn't sustainable. And a lot of the conversations that I've had with really senior, brilliant women who have decided to choose to leave the industry, it has been that burnout. And I think those boundaries, they have to come from organizations and also from individuals. Because do you remember right at the beginning of COVID, we were all talking about 
surveillance systems on computers, all sorts of weird stuff based on the idea that employees just wouldn't work as much. And I think what the data has shown us is yeah. we've all worked a lot, a lot, and that isn't sustainable. And then the third thing, and I think this is really, really important, is to consider working differently. I often talk to younger women. I was actually talking to a wonderful young strategist at a, a media agency recently who wanted to go down to three days a week um, because she has a, a side hustle. And I think actually having those conversations, you know, don't have that, don't rest on it, don't let it be a thought, because sometimes your company will really en enable you and empower you to work in a different way. And that actually can bring your confidence back to you. So I think it's not being afraid to have those conversations and, and don't assume that people don't want you to thrive. They do. I, I sometimes feel that women wait too long. They'll stay in a job they're not happy at or they're not being rewarded enough for for too long. They, they'll wait too long to have that conversation about flexible working. They don't want to raise it. And I just think, don't wait. Just actually act on the thing it is that you really want to do because it's so easy to put things off. Like in COVID, I rebranded my dishwasher as the dishwasher where dreams went to die because you'd have an idea but no, you had to just fill the dishwasher again. And I think there's a level of realism that's really important, but there's also a huge opportunity at the moment. This is a once in a generation opportunity to reshape the workforce for the better. And I think people are so passionate about that. I've had so many women emailing me since this column came out saying things about experiences that they've had and one really stuck in my mind a very senior brilliant woman um, in publishing saying you know she'd gone to her then female managing director and said i look i'm really struggling she had three kids under five and, and a very sick parent i'd like to work from home one day a week and the female md was like well no i had to do it so you have to do it and i just think that is the mm -hmm. antithesis of where we are now. I, all around me, I see brilliant leaders, and it's not just about men or women that are going, right, what can we do to make things better? What barriers are there that we, we might have faced in our careers? Like we definitely didn't have boundaries starting out as reporters. It was just work continually every night, out you go, you know, get your stories. But like, how can we support younger people coming into the industry now so that they don't necessarily have to burn the candle both ends all the time that, you know, maybe they can have a brilliant hobby. They might be professional sports people on the side. There might be huge spaces for them to really squiggle in their careers. And I think that's a really positive thing that we can actually go, hang on a minute. Let's have a conversation about what it is you're struggling with. And then let's work out what we can change because there's always something we can change, whether it's at an organizational level or an individ individual level. And that's where the, the fun comes in and the growth, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, um, I suspect going forward, I mean, um, I'd, I'd love to hear what you're going to write in um, your, your, the next edition of your column. Um, but I suspect what um, a lot of the issues you might touch on throughout the year each month is um, just the 
not just um, the the women's issues that you'll be talking about, but a lot of what we talked about, I feel, is generational issues, or not even generational, just shorter time periods than that, where to your point about the manager saying, well, I it was like that for me, so you have to do it as well. I think it's so easy to lose sight of how much our industry has changed in a short amount of time. And you reminded me of being a cub reporter, and this is going back about 15 years ago. And just the newsrooms are just completely different today in many ways than how they used to be in terms of, I, I used to liken it to the army where you turn yes. up and your drill sergeant, your editor just tells you what to do and you, you do it and you, you work long hours and that's just the culture. And particularly if you wanted to, you know, um, a lot of local newspaper reporters, that's where I started off. You know, if they want to work at a national newspaper, they've just got to do shifts in the evening and the weekends. That's just the way you do it. And if you're not independently wealthy to kind of work for the low salary you're given, if you're not um, usually male and don't have caring responsibilities, it can be incredibly tough. And so we're all, everyone's getting to grips with that, um, not just um, in publishing, but um, across the industry. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it as well. So hopefully, um, time will be a healer in that regard. But um, can, can it, before we wrap up, can you give us any tips for what you're going to write about next? Any teases? So I'm going to get really stuck into that messy middle. I want to find out more about what's happening at that messy middle in women's careers and what we can do about it, because I think that's kind of the invisible missing piece as to why why actually aren't women progressing. I don't think we ask that particularly honestly. Uh, as an industry, we have a narrative that women drop out, like they're kind of amorphous lemmings going off a cliff rather than what's actually stopping them. Also, the hybrid working thing. I think a two-tier workforce is definitely emerging where you've got women working from home more than men. Had an agency CEO the other day tell me a woman had come to him for a pay rise and he was like, gosh, I'd, I wasn't even aware that she was still working for me which is you know, a bit of an insight into how that two-tier workforce can emerge. But also, I am super excited for the Women's World Cup. I think there's such a missed opportunity around women's sponsorship. I think the sponsorship gap is huge. Um, I think there's a lot of really exciting um, innovation in that space, and that's something I'm really personally passionate about as well because my daughter is an excellent football player. Um, so I'm really looking forward to writing about that as well, because I just think also, I think, you know, you think about the women's Euros and the impact that that's had, you know, that the, the access to sport that girls are going to get in schools that they never would have had before. It's such a brilliant reminder of actually the media industry has such a huge power to absolutely change the narrative and change the experiences of young girls in schools. I mean, girls as young as seven define themselves as not being sporty, which is just such a huge opportunity and such a travesty as well. So I think there's something really powerful in just actually the opportunity for the industry to really change that narrative because that's what people want, right? We talk a lot about the different expectations between um, younger people in the workforce and older people. And there's definitely a lot of friction points within that. But I think the biggest shift is in attitudes. You know, I talk to younger reporters. I talk to, you know, junior people in media agencies and their attitudes are very, very different when it comes to the kind of work they want to work on. You know, what they feel is acceptable in terms of hate speech in mainstream media and what they expect 
you know, they have got different expectations. And yes, there's challenges that come with that. But there's also this really good opportunity to go, actually, am I wrong in what I think is acceptable or what I think can't be done? Because there's definitely a generation coming in that are really committed to change in such a positive way yes and the more we can do to, to harness that positivity and what they're trying to do um the better um nicola kemp thanks so much for coming on to the media leader podcast i'll of course post a link to the column for anyone who hasn't read it in the show notes um but thanks very much hope to have you on again soon thanks for having me Thanks again for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. And there's more of where that came from on our website. The-media-leader.com is our website. You can sign up to our daily newsletter in the UK and weekly roundup of media in the US. You can also find us on YouTube where we are posting video interviews and clips from our live events. Our LinkedIn page where people like to comment on the things that we're posting. And Twitter where all our stuff is pretty much pumped out like a beautiful fountain of media industry content. That's it. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.